Israel's kings are not fixing the problem of sin, they're becoming part of the problem and making it worse. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 21st episode of Working with the Word. Today we're continuing our flyover view of the whole story of the Bible, and we're focusing on the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. Remember, we're comparing our whole story overview to what the Earth would look like from the International Space Station. So from this vantage point, Samuel and Kings tell us about the rise and fall of the Kingdom of Israel. What part does the kingdom play into God's plan to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ? It's helpful to remember that originally, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings were each contained in one scroll, not broken up into 1st and 2nd. And that tells us that this is just one continuous story picking up where the last book we covered, which is Judges, left off. So, Jeff, I'm going to kick it to you, and you kind of get us up to speed on how we got to where we are right now. Like we've been wanting to do with the beginning of these whole story episodes, we're always looking back as well as trying to look forward. So looking back for a moment, while yes, the book of Ruth does sit in between Judges and 1 Samuel, we want to think about how that time period of the Judges were acting as these quote-unquote leaders, or really more simply military leaders, How do we transition from there to the time period where there were kings reigning in Israel? In the first few chapters, we are introduced to the character Samuel, who would be recognized as the last judge of Israel and the quote-unquote beginning of a new era of prophets. Now, there were other prophets between Moses and Samuel, but none get quite as significant page space as Samuel does. We'll mention a few other prophets in today's episode, but be on the lookout for our future episode about the book's relating to the prophets. Everything from Isaiah through Malachi. We'll talk more then about what is a prophet, what's their role, what are some of the things their message contain. But understand that Samuel is kind of the beginning of God using prophets to speak to his people. We see prophets playing a much bigger role than when we had just maybe one prophet like in the days of Moses. We see that in this section as well, in these first couple chapters of 1 Samuel God proves that he does not, quote-unquote, need Israel when he embarrasses the Philistines after they take the ark. There's still this conflict with the Philistines. There's still, in this towards the end of the time period, the judges, when Eli is still a judge, when Samuel is kind of still reigning as judge. Still problems with the Philistines, and that usually coming out of the response of God's people being disobedient to him. But God proves, I don't need your help for that. I can do all this on my own as he strikes them with plagues and and all those types of things. We pick up from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3 and 4. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods, the Ashtaroth, from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. If only the people would have listened to Samuel, if they would have done this thing, and would have committed themselves to continually do this, to continually only serve God, to remove these idols, to seek God first. But unfortunately, that's not how we see things play out. 
Yeah, and that takes us really to the first major event that we see in the book of 1 Samuel. In chapter 8, Israel demands that Samuel give them a king. It says in verse 5, the elders spoke to Samuel, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same way as all the other nations have. And verses 19 and 20, they go into a little bit more detail about what they really want. They say, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. So, you know, as we think about the book of Judges, the Judges ended with this statement that there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. But the fundamental problem in the time period of the Judges wasn't that they had no king, because really they did. God was their king. The problem was that they did what was right in their own eyes. The the problem of sin is rearing its ugly head again and just getting worse. And so because the people are focused on the wrong problem, they sought the wrong solution. They said to themselves, things are terrible in Israel, and they were. I mean, that's why we called the time of the judges the toilet bowl of the Bible, because <laughs> things are just so bad and they just get keep getting worse. But they say, if only we had a king, then things would get better. And so they ask for a king, and that's not really going to solve their problem. And the problem even more fundamental than that, was that they were rejecting God as their leader. If you think about what they were asking for, we want a king who's going to judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles for us. God had already done those things for the people in the days of Joshua. Even he delivered them in the time of the judges. God had been fighting their battles really since the time they got into the land. And so God had done everything that they're asking for, and yet they're still unsatisfied with God. And so God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me from being their king. And so first Samuel shows us that God selects their first king, and his name is Saul. And Saul starts out really, really well. In chapters 9 through 12, we see his rise to power from humble beginnings. He's got humility. When people criticize him, they say, Saul's not going to amount to much. He exercises a lot of self-restraint, and he's got great leadership skills. He even gives God the credit for the victory that they have in battle. But beginning in chapter 13, really to the end of the book, we see Saul's demise. And his demise coincides with David's rise. So if you're trying to give a visual for our listeners, you know, if you have two arches that are overlapping each other about halfway through. That's kind of what the book of 1 Samuel shows us. You've got Saul's demise, and at the same time, you've got David's rise. And so there's a really interesting and, I think, intentional contrast in Samuel between Saul and David. In 1 Samuel 9, whenever God is is telling Samuel to choose and anoint Saul, he looks the part. He's introduced to us as an impressive young man, that there was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he, and he stood a head and shoulders taller than anybody else. And so he looks like what you expect a king to look like. But whenever Samuel goes to Bethlehem to anoint David, David doesn't look the part. But in 1 Samuel 16, whenever Samuel goes to Bethlehem to anoint David as the next king, as Saul's successor. He walks in and he sees first son of Jesse and he says, you know, this is the guy. He he is tall, he's handsome. And the Lord says, don't look at his appearance or his statue or his stature because I have rejected him. 
Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for they see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And David is the youngest of Jesse's sons, and yet he is the one that God has chosen. And so you've got this really interesting contrast between Saul, who looks exactly like you would expect a king to look, and then David, who doesn't look like a king at all. And the point is that Saul was the kind of king that the people wanted, and that ends with an epic fail, while David was the kind of king that God wanted, not what we might expect, and he succeeds. Now, Here's the whole story connection. 1 Samuel prepares us for what's coming by, number one, showing us that we need to see our fundamental problem, and that is sin. It is not that we don't have a leader over us. It is that we reject the true leader, who is God. And the second thing it shows us is that we really do need a king, but not the king that we might immediately think of. We need a king like David who may not necessarily stand head and shoulders above everybody else, who may not necessarily be what we would expect. And so 1 Samuel really asks us, what kind of king do you want? What is your idea of a good king? And, you know, moving ahead a little bit to Jesus, is Jesus the kind of king that we would have expected? Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody expected Jesus to be (laughs) king coming from Nazareth. Isaiah says that he had no visible appearance that we would marvel at him. And so... Jesus is the kind of king kind of in David's footsteps where he loves God. He's an example of of serving God. That's the kind of king that we need to be looking for, not someone who just looks the part uh, externally. And so that's really what the book of 1 Samuel is about. And like we mentioned, originally, this would have just been the book of Samuel. There wouldn't have been Mm -hmm. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. So obviously it transitions really well from the end of 1 Samuel, where Saul dies, to the beginning of 2 Samuel, where David is immediately lamenting Saul's death. So we're ending 1 Samuel with Saul's reign, but we're continuing the story right on with seeing how David responds to it. And as we begin 2 Samuel, we see David start as king. David was originally anointed, like we just talked about, by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, but he does not actually take the throne all the way until 2 Samuel chapter 2 and does not start reigning in Jerusalem until 2 Samuel chapter 5. It takes a while before David becomes to be the one who sits on the throne, the one who's going to lead the people of Israel, and really maybe the David we think of, the David from Jerusalem, the David who is fighting these battles, the David who's this great poet and king, David's definitely the key character here in 2 Samuel. We go from his start as king to thinking about this very important chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we see David's security as king. We see that David, at the beginning of that chapter, decides he wants to build a more permanent house for God. Remember, God has a dwelling place on earth through the tabernacle. Well, we'll call that a dwelling place in the fact that that's where his glory comes as he interacts with his people in that particular way. And David decides he wants to build something more permanent. He talks about, at least in the English Standard Version, a house of cedar for him, this idea of a lot more permanent than just a tent that would be set up and taken down. But God responds to him in this chapter. Some things to note from just a couple of verses here. In verses 9 and verse 11 of 2 Samuel 7, it says, And I will make for you a great name. David wants to build a house for God, But we see God says, I'm going to make you a great name. In verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Listen closely to what God says in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In verse 16, the latter part of that verse of 2 Samuel 7, your throne shall be established forever. All of a sudden, 2 Samuel 7 comes along with this covenant type of level of chapter and importance and kind of really standing out and telling the story of the Bible like we see in Genesis 12 with those promises to Abraham, or Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments, or Genesis chapter 3 with those promises to the woman. Now we have this new covenant, and we have to follow along with this promise as well. We've been following the promise of the seed of the woman, is there that one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. We've been following the promise of Abraham. Now what about this, the king who's going to rule forever? Who is this person? So we were talking before we started recording that all of the Bible is important but that there are certain passages that are more key to the story than others. And 2 Samuel 7 is one of these because it shows that God is making this promise to David that's really going to last forever, and it's really going to move the story forward as we look forward to Jesus. Absolutely. And again, that's why this is such an important chapter to know and to key in on in this particular book. Now, as we move forward in David's story, we go from his start as king and from his security as king to unfortunate seeing David's sin as king. We're maybe familiar with David and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Listen to some of the things it talks about. With David, he saw a woman bathing, and then he saw that she was beautiful, and so he took her and lay with her. Some things to make some connections with real quick. Eve, back in Genesis chapter 3, saw the fruit that was good for food. She also saw that it was delight to the eyes, and so she took the fruit desiring to become wise. All those relate to some things we read about from 1 John chapter 2, think about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life that John talks about there relating to sin. We see those things in the example of David. We see those things in the example of Eve. We see those things in our life as well. And unfortunately, as we remember this story, we know that there are consequences for what David does. As he chooses to commit adultery, as he is going to lie, as he's going to murder, that leads to a child end up dying. It also leads to conflict and strife within his house. But before we get into that in just a moment, think about what David does in response to his sin. We could think about the life of Saul. You could go back to 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 15, when Saul sinned, he often made excuses. The people brought these animals to make sacrifice. It's not my fault, or I feel like I've done a good enough job, or it's close enough type of stuff that Saul will say when he sins. But when David sinned, we have Psalm 51, verse 1 and 2, just the beginning here, to see David's heart. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David owns that sin. Not in a good way. We don't mean that in a positive way. We mean that in a David very well recognizes I have sinned against God. And that's the beginning of repentance is then looking for God to create that clean heart in him. Something we pretty much never saw from King Saul, we see very clearly in the life of David here. Even in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when Nathan confronts him and David, in the account there, we simply see, I have sinned. And and those are words that Saul says as well. I think in 1 Samuel 15, he Samuel's confronting him about the bleeding sheep of the Amalekites. He says, I have sinned, but he follows, follows that up with, but 
restore me now and and praise me in front of the people. And so whenever yeah. we say to God, I've sinned, but it's it's not true repentance. Yeah, you see it's all focused on David wanting to reestablish his relationship with God and not trying to attach any type of extra conditions along with this. So from David's sin, we see David struggles as king through pretty much the rest of 2 Samuel. Just a couple of things to briefly bring out. We see David's children doing terrible things to one another. We saw that Nathan had told David in 2 Samuel 12, the sword will not depart from your house. We'll see that David's wives will be humiliated in the presence of all of the people. David's children, again, are doing terrible things to one another. We see rape among them. We see murder among them. We see this great rebellion led by his own son, Absalom. And David has kind of run out of the city and is fearing for his life. We think about those earlier days when he was running from Saul. We see many of these psalms that are similar to delivery from my enemies and why is this happening to me and and just realizing you know, what a terrible time it is for David towards the end of this life. We want to make some whole story connections here from 2 Samuel. We want to think about the eternal throne. Again, probably the, the most significant thing we'll think about from 2 Samuel is from 2 Samuel 7. This means that it exists today. If there is a throne that is established forever and someone sits on that throne forever, that means even though it's approximately 3,000 years later, someone is still sitting on that throne. And we, of course, know who we're supposed to think about when we think of who sits on that throne. We think about Jesus. We also want to think about sin and repentance. Think about how our sin carries consequences. And by God's patience and grace, we can repent of those sins, but know that 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 does not necessarily mean the physical consequences are necessarily removed. Uriah is still dead at the end of chapter 12. The baby still died at the end of chapter 12. David's family still rebels against him. We see more about just how terrible sin is, but we do see the need for repentance and the need to have that restoration with God as well. And so moving into 1 Kings, David has been restored to his position as king in Jerusalem. But 1 Kings opens with David as an old man, and he's preparing his son Solomon to reign. Now, it's interesting that Solomon was the son of Bathsheba. He obviously is not the son that was born of the adulterous relationship between them. But it is interesting that God chose Solomon to be the next king because David really had no right to Bathsheba to begin with. But in chapter 8, Solomon fulfills God's promise by building God a house. So that key passage in 2 Samuel 7, when God promises to David, I'm going to build you a house and I'm going to give you your throne forever. Solomon fulfills part of that by building God this house. David had made preparations. He had amassed the supplies. He had uh, made plans to, to build the temple, but it wasn't David's job. It was Solomon's job to build this temple. And it's similar to the tabernacle, but much grander in scale. As you mentioned earlier, it's it's a permanent structure and it is ginormous. It is filled with gold. It's uh, got ornate structures in it, ornate uh, artistry in it. This is really the golden age of Israel's wealth, power, and influence. Somewhere in 1 Kings, it says that silver wasn't even worth anything in Solomon's day (laughs) because it was so abundant, uh, as abundant as rocks. Mm -hmm. And so you think about the wealth that he had, but it also came at great cost. 1 Kings also tells us that Solomon gathered for himself wealth, weapons, and women. Those are the three things that God had specifically warned that the kings were not 
to amass for themselves in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Wealth, weapons, and women. And it says in 1 Kings 11 verse 4, that when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So from Solomon, the kingdom splits into two parts. And you've got the northern kingdom, Israel, you've got the southern kingdom, Judah, they become bitter rivals from this point forward. Solomon's son Rehoboam rules over Judah in the south, and Jeroboam rules over Israel in the north. And the story of the Bible becomes harder to summarize (laughs) at this point because now we've got two tracks to follow, not just one. And so from Solomon and Rehoboam, Jeroboam, the split, some of Judah's kings are good. But the rest of 1 Kings, you'll talk more about the kings of Judah in just a little bit, but the rest of 1 Kings really follows the northern kingdom's history and its downward spiral, starting with Jeroboam. So Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12 sets an early precedent for the nation by setting up two golden calves, one at Dan and one at Bethel. And his reasoning is, if the people go down to Jerusalem to worship in the temple there, then their hearts are going to return to Rehoboam. And so it was really a political move for himself. He wants to preserve his own political power. And so he sets up these golden calves and he says, these are your gods. And almost every king that follows Jeroboam from this point forward follows in his steps. It is said of almost every king that they followed in the sin that Jeroboam started. So then we've got Ahab and Ahab takes this idolatry that Jeroboam starts to a whole nother level by marrying this woman named Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of of a neighboring king, and it says in 1 Kings 16.31 that as if following the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel. (laughs) And so you know if God disapproves of your marriage if he says, as if it's bad enough, <laughs> he married this person. It's even worse. Yeah, Yeah, it's even worse. And so Elijah comes onto the scene as a major character, as a prophet. And his role is to tell Ahab, you need to return to the Lord. You need to cut off these idols that you're worshiping. And in First in Kings 18, we've got this really dramatic story of the showdown at Mount Carmel where uh, Elijah calls these prophets of Baal together, and they build an altar, and they cry out to Baal for their sacrifice to light on fire. It doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And then Elijah builds his altar. He pours 12 buckets of water Mm -hmm. on it, completely soaks the whole thing, and prays to God just one prayer, and fire comes down from heaven. And from that story alone, Ahab should have known that the Lord is God. Now, here's the whole story connection from 1 Kings. The big takeaways are, number one, the role of a king. So as we saw in 1 Samuel, the role of a king wasn't to replace God's leadership, but instead it was to point people to God's leadership. Many times the ancient kings saw themselves as supreme leaders or even gods. That was not the role of an Israelite king. He was to be a model of justice and righteousness for the people, pointing ultimately to God and modeling God's righteousness. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, verses 19 and 20, we're told that when the king was appointed, he was supposed to sit down and write for himself a copy of the law in his own handwriting. It says, It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So his role was to be a godly leader who points people to God. But really, you don't see that happening much at all in the kings. Because the sin of idolatry and immorality, that really was just local in Judges, you know, just pockets here and there. Now it becomes national in both kingdoms. Israel's kings are not fixing the problem of sin. They're becoming part of the problem and making it worse. And that takes us to 2 Kings. As we leave off the end of 1 Kings, focusing mainly on Ahab has died, we're still picking up with the prophet Elijah, who was that major character during the reign of Ahab. Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven very early on in 2 Kings, and we're introduced to this other character, Elisha. Elisha is going to receive this double portion of Elijah's spirit, kind of a symbol of the inheritance that the oldest son would usually get, but rather than being a physical inheritance, this is a spiritual inheritance. And Elisha is going to be this great prophet who not only is going to speak messages of God, but we're going to see lots of awesome miracles that Elisha does here in the beginning of 2 Kings. This is just a a short list of some of the things that Elisha does. He parts the Jordan River. He quote-unquote heals some water that wasn't good. He sets up a situation where there's this woman who has an opportunity to have overflowing oil, tells a woman that she will bear a son, but then later when that son dies, Elisha returns and raises him from the dead. Elisha removes quote-unquote death from a pot of stew multiplies small amount of food for a large crowd. He tells Naaman how to be healed of his leprosy. There's lots of things that Elijah does that we may be getting kind of thoughts of. That's similar to stuff that Jesus does. And I mm-hmm. think that's not just happenstance or coincidental. That's, I think, for sure meant to be on purpose, as we'll read those stories later on of Jesus' miracles and see some of those things that he did. Let's think about these two particular kingdoms as we close out Second Kings. Think about, first of all, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. I want to read a somewhat lengthy section here from Second Kings chapter 17. Second Kings chapter 17, verses 6 through 8. This is the explanation about why that kingdom was sent into exile, was sent into captivity, and this is some of the things that they did. So listen, if you can, or follow along, if you will, with Second Kings 17, starting in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the custom of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. The people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations whom the Lord carried away before them did. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. They served idols on which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel, 
in Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. They made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. They burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil on the side of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. You see the times in there where it says God was very explicit and clear of don't do these things. Don't worship idols. Don't serve these false gods. Don't be like the nations around you or don't try to be like the nations that I drove out. Why did God drive out those nations in Joshua? Because they were sinful people. Why would you do those things that the sinful people did when you see what God does to those people? It shows, though, really the summary of all of this section. Again, it's the problem of sin. Choosing their will over or against God's will that led them into exile. You can think all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. That's what happens there. Adam and Eve choose their will over God's will leads them into being exiled from the garden. And with the kingdom of Israel, they're exiled into Assyrian captivity. Well, we left off there at the end of 2 Kings 17, 18 of talking about Judah. And let's think about Judah for a moment. There are a couple of good kings, like Emerson mentioned. Uh, more than the two we'll mention right now, we want to mention two particularly that are highlighted in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings 18, we read about Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18 and verse 3, Hezekiah tries to do what is right. It says there that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. And later in 2 Kings 18, 5 and 6, he trusted the Lord, held a fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments of the Lord that he had been commanded to Moses. We see all of that there, that Hezekiah is trying to do what is right, but unfortunately, Hezekiah still has flaws, and Hezekiah is not able to bring the people to complete repentance and complete obedience to God. We see Hezekiah's son is one of the worst kings that we've seen in the kingdom of Judah out of all the kings, the king Manasseh. But later on, we do reach King Josiah. Again, King Josiah in 2 Kings 22 verse 2 says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And later in 2 Kings 23 verse 21 and 22 He removes many of the high places that were left, as he kept the Passover, as was written in the book of the covenant, for no such Passover had been kept since the days before the judges. One of the amazing stories that happens in the days of Josiah is they're doing renovation work in the temple, and while they're doing so, they find the book of the law, and as they find the book of the law, they're reading it, and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, we're not doing much of this, if any of this, and we see there's punishments for that, and as they bring it to Josiah, Josiah could have just chopped it off or not cared, as we see other kings doing and respecting towards God's word. But Josiah makes an impact to say, you know what, we need to do something about this. So he does his best to remove many of those high places, does his best to serve the Lord and to to follow him. But unfortunately, even Josiah has flaws, and he is not that eternal king who's going to sit on the throne for forever. 
So let's move out of 2 Kings, if you will, with me. The end of 2 Kings parallels with some things that are said in 2 Chronicles 36 I want to read that talks about the fall of Judah. Some things from there, and then some things from the book of Jeremiah as we finish out this section of Israel's history. In 2 Chronicles 36, 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his word and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. We see in other places where it says that God over and over reminds them, look what happened to Israel. Learn from their mistakes. Don't do their mistakes. But unfortunately, what we see is they just follow in Israel's footsteps. So we see in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 21, God sends them into Babylonian captivity, sends them into exile to fulfill the word of the Lord that was spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. That relates to something that says in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 through 11. Jeremiah says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send you for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from among them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. What's happening here? We're seeing disobedience. We're seeing the problem of sin. We're seeing how the problem of sin leads this group of people, not just any group of people, but God's people, down a path where they are led away from him. And as they choose to rebel against him, even over and over when God tries to send messengers to try to turn them around, they don't listen. And so we see that they're sent into exile as well. I think that's the saddest part about it, is the fact that these are God's people that he loves. And in the prophets, he he laments, God laments about, how can I give my people up? But he has to, because they have just repeatedly turned their back upon God. And what a what a great warning to us that even you know when we are God's people we can do the same thing. That's right. That we can turn on Him, but we also see that there is a chance for repentance. We think about David. David turned against God, but he chose to come back to Him. We see that's what God was encouraging: come back to Me. And we think about jumping up to something like Second Peter chapter three. Think about the patience of God. God does not do things in our time; He does stuff in His time. But as he is going to eventually bring this world to judgment, the fact that there is still time right now shows a sign of God's patience, that there are people who are not yet right with him, that he is giving opportunity for them to do so. But as we think about wrapping up this section, we want to go back to Jeremiah chapter 25. Look at verses 12 and verse 13. There is hope here. He talks about how the people are going to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. He picks up verse 12, though, and says, Then after... Seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. Think about our whole story connection and how this fits into the whole story of the Bible. There's still all of those same themes. The, the problem of sin, we've seen that 
really since Judges until now. We, we've seen it since Genesis, realistically, but we've been really emphasizing it since Judges. We've emphasized it, I think, in each book today. We're still emphasizing and still seeing the problem of we need a perfect king. We need that good king who's going to reign forever. We've got great kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, but they're still not perfect kings. We've got great kings like Solomon or David, but they're not perfect kings. We're looking for that perfect king in Jesus Christ. We want to think about this last theme, though, the theme of the remnant, the faithful few who are always there choosing to be faithful to the Lord. The fact that there is a return, the fact that Jeremiah doesn't stop at verse 11 there, but he picks up in verse 12 with saying, after the captivity, the fact that there is a return shows that there's going to be this remnant. And when the final judgment day comes, when God speaks in his word about providing rest and salvation for those who endure persecutions or suffering or difficulty of this life, people who are constantly having to fight against false teachings, we are or we need to be that remnant who no matter what continually chooses to be faithful to the Lord. Every section of the Bible that we've talked about so far has a to be continued, right? Something that we're looking forward to, something that's unresolved. And so what's unresolved here is this problem of sin that you described and the promise that God is going to bring a king from David who's going to reign forever. So 2 Samuel 7, that promise, that key passage, question is, how is that promise going to come about? A king who's going to rule forever in David's line. He's going to rule in righteousness and justice. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't Rehoboam. It wasn't even Hezekiah or Josiah. Even those good kings that we see in Israel, they weren't perfect and they couldn't you know, perfectly fulfill this promise. So if not them, then who? And obviously looking forward, we know that it's Jesus, but stay tuned to see how that plays out. So our challenge for this week, we want to encourage you to read and pray through 1 Kings chapter 8. That's where Solomon builds the temple. There's this great prayer that Solomon prays as he dedicates the temple. Now, obviously, the parallels are not going to be 100% there and everything you could pray as you read through that chapter. But pay special attention to what you learn about these two things from 1 Kings 8. Number one, the character and the glory of God. We may not think about God's character and glory, you know, as it fills up a physical temple today, but we can still learn a lot about God's character and about God's glory from there. Number two, learn about the types of hearts and lives that God's people should have and live. Now, what happens when they do wrong? What do God's people do? What should God's people do as they approach him in worship? There are wonderful things to learn about from 1 Kings chapter 8. So read that chapter and pray through that chapter as we think about how that can make an impact on our lives as servants of God today. Thank you for tuning in to Working with the Word today. Next week, we'll wrap up the books of history with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Considering the time of Israel's history where they went into captivity and then returned from that exile. We hope you've been enjoying this whole story series, and that most importantly, it will prove helpful in some way as you read and study God's Word to know Him better. Until next time, if there are any other questions, topics, or books of the Bible you'd like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can always find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.